Tonight we're going to continue our study in the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be looking at chapter 5. And although 2 Kings often focuses on the kings, and there will be kings involved in our study tonight, it's really going to focus more on Elisha and a man by the name of Naaman. It's going to be a very interesting study. And what we're going to see is this pagan man named Naaman is going to be cured of leprosy by an act of faith. But we're also going to see an Israelite that's going to be cursed with leprosy by an act of disobedience. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter, that will play out very clearly in your minds. And we'll have, we will have discussed it thoroughly. So let's begin in 2 Kings chapter uh, 5. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, he was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Right away we're introduced to this man of Naaman and we're told a few things about him. We're told that he's the commander of the Syrian army. Syria was an enemy to Israel, if you remember correctly. They weren't friendly together. Syria had defeated Israel in, in, in their most recent encounter. He was an enemy to both Israel and Judah, to, to both of them. In the days of Ahab and Jehoshaphat, uh, Naaman had been the one that be, had defeated them. Some Bible scholars and the Jewish rabbis actually believe that Naaman was the one who fired the arrow. Remember the random arrow that was fired up into the air and came down and, and hit, hit uh, King Ahab in a crease in his armor? The rabbis teach that that. Naaman was the one who fired that arrow. So that would have brought great uh, honor to him. So we're told he's the commander of the Syrian army, which is an enemy of Israel. We're told he's a great man. That means he's of major importance. He's major significance. He's important in the kingdom. He's He's the commander. He's the major in their army. We're told that he's an honorable man. That means he's honored among, he he was respected, he was honored, the the people held him in high esteem. He was a man with great authority. He was, you know, maybe second in charge to the king. He was the king's right-hand man, if you will. So he has a pretty good resume going. But we're also told that he's a mighty, a mighty man of valor, a mighty man of valor. So what that means is he's strong, he's powerful, he's a champion, he's a hero, he's who the little kids pretend to be, the little boys pretend to be Naaman in in Syria, that's who they want to be when they grow up, they want to be like Naaman because of the reputation, because of the honor, because of the might and the strength that he has, he's kind of like a superhero, if you will, in Syria, but notice what it says, but a leper, he's also a leper, Naaman was very successful, He had a lot going for him, but there was something that was devastating him. There was something that was out of his control. He had leprosy. All of his successes, all of his accomplishments meant nothing to him personally, probably because he's dying of leprosy. He was a leper. He was dying of leprosy. Being a leper meant that he would die a slow and disgraceful death. You see, there was no cure for leprosy. It wasn't like he could run on down to the doctor's office or the emergency room and check himself in and get an antibiotic and be fine in a few days. As long as he took the full course of antibiotics, it didn't work that way. Leprosy was a death sentence. It was something that was horrible. Ancient leprosy began as small red spots on the skin. You had these small red spots that would show up, and then before too long, the spots would get bigger, and then they would start to turn white, and with a sort of a shiny or scaly appearance, and pretty soon the spots would begin to spread all over the whole body of the person, and their body hair would begin to fall out, their hair on their head would begin to fall out, their eyebrows, all of their hair would begin to fall out, and it wasn't be long after that that their fingernails would rot off, and their toenails would rot off, and their body was literally decaying on the outside. It was just literally decaying right before, right before their, their very eyes. 
the joints of the fingers and the toes would begin to rot and they would fall off piece by piece. It was, you, as I'm describing this, you're probably going, oh, that's disgusting. Well, it was. Your gums would begin to shrink back up into your mouth and your teeth would fall out. And it was, it was all of these things and more. It kept eating away at your face until literally your, your, your nose would fall off and your body parts were just literally falling off you and it was a very slow and painful and horrible death. And this is what he has. And he, he, would wait, he knew by having this, his only, it was a death sentence, he would waste away until he was dead. Perhaps the greatest curse of leprosy was that nobody would ever touch you again. You see, nobody wanted to touch a leper. It, it, was, it, it was against the law in, in Israel, but in Syria, they did, why didn't they want to touch you? They didn't want to get it. You were an outcast. You were going to be sent out by yourself somewhere. Nobody wanted to touch you. No more gentle pats, no warm hugs, no kisses from your spouse or children, just isolation. So of all his great successes, all the things that he accomplished, all of the, the way that people looked up to him, he had a secret on the inside. You see, I imagine him at this point because I, I suspect it was very early in, early in his leprosy. He was wearing long sleeves. He was covering up whatever was eating him away. He didn't want people to know until it was possibly too late. It's easy to look at a guy like Naaman and say, man, I wish I was him. Man, I wish I had accomplished what he had accomplished. I wish I could fight the war like he could fight. I wish I could plan the battles like he could plan the battles. I, I, I wish I had the respect and the honor among the people. I wish I was a hero. I wish the little boys pretended to be like me. And I'm the one they wanted to be. And you might be completely unaware that lying beneath the surface is leprosy. You see, oftentimes we look at somebody's life and we go, oh, I wish I could do that. I wish I could be like that. And we never give thought to what the person had to go through or what they're going through as a result of what they are achieving or what they are accomplishing. You see, Naaman had this leprosy. And we need to be careful when we envy a part of somebody's life. You're not seeing the whole person. You're just seeing the public part of their life. You're not seeing everything that's going on. You don't know what they had to endure to get there. You don't know the pain that they might have been enduring because of, the, because of what they've achieved. We simply look at somebody's life and go, I'd like to be that. I wish I could be that, that person. Do you really? Sometimes people will say to me, I wish I could be like the Apostle Paul. Really? You want to get beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead? You, you, that, prison that that's what you want to be like well no no i just want to write the bible and be that famous and you know have that kind of insight do you realize what paul had to endure to have the insight that he had no thank you you see naaman was the kind of guy that you looked at everything on the outside was squared away it was perfect it was like wow this guy's got it all together but underneath of his sleeves if he were to roll them up you would see the lepers <coughs> and you would see the spots and he knows that this is a death sentence for him Look at verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and they had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, If only my master, and she's speaking of Naaman here, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now we're introduced to a young girl who's an Israelite. Apparently, Syria had raided Israel. They'd captured this young girl. They took her back as a slave. She's kind of a missionary in this position. She didn't want to be there, but this is where she's at. This is where the Lord has her. She probably witnessed the death of her family as a result of this, of her father and brothers. Don't know what happened to her mother. Her mother doesn't really tell us if she's there or not there. But yet, in the midst of her 
Well, I think we could say she's in a difficult position, wouldn't you? I mean, if you were taken away from your, if you were a young girl and you were taken away from your family and you were spent to a foreign land and you were forced to wait on somebody else, you'd say that was a hardship, wouldn't you? I would, I, you would too. But yet, what's she doing? She looks at her master because she knows, because she sees. She goes, if only he was with the prophet in Samaria, he would heal him. The prophet in Samaria would heal him. She's in a place that she never really planned to be in life. She probably saw her family killed, all of these things, and yet here she is testifying of the power of God, of the God of Israel. How cool is that? You know, so often we find ourselves in a place that we didn't plan to be in. What do we do? Lord, what am I doing here? Would you get me out of here? I don't want to. This is too hard. This is too tough. We start whining and we start complaining. We deserve better. Why'd you give me this spouse, God? Give me something better. Give me someone better. We, we find all these things to complain about. Look at the little girl. She's in slavery, essentially, as a result of war, and she's testifying of the power of God. If we could only have that much faith, if we could only have that much. Now, I want you to notice two things about the girl. Number one, she cared. She cared. She has a caring heart. She cares for her master and her master's wife. Her job now is to take care of her master's wife, take care of Naaman's wife. But yet you see her caring heart. If she didn't have a caring heart, she would have never told him that. She would have walked around going, I know how he could get healed, but I'm not saying a word. I'm not saying a word. He needs to suffer. Good for take, doing what he did to my family. You know, Perhaps he, she saw him commit some of these atrocities against her family. We don't know that. We're not given that information. But we see that she has a caring heart and she had cared enough to speak up about her God. She saw him in difficulty. She saw him in the position that he was in. And she said, I know somebody that can help you. I know a God that can help you. I know somebody that can help you. Number two, she had faith. She had faith. If Naaman was with Elisha, then he would be healed. That's what she's saying. If, if Naaman would go to see Elisha, he would be healed. This little girl had faith. Do you know why? Because there's no record of anybody ever being healed of leprosy with the exception of Naaman in the Old Testament. There's no record of an Israelite. Now, the New Testament, absolutely, we see Jesus do it. And Jesus tells him, go show yourself to the priest. There was a prescription in the, Israel, in the, in the Jewish law for when someone was healed of leprosy. But we don't read any record of anybody being healed of leprosy. Yet this girl goes, Elisha can do it because he's in the power of God. Elisha can do it. So it shows her faith. She has this kind of faith. One commentator said this. It was Adam Clark. He said, and see the benefits of a religious education, assuming she went to Christian school or Jewish school or a school where her parents taught her about the Lord or, or just simply her parents teaching her about the Lord. See the benefits of a religious education. Had not this little maid been brought up in the knowledge of the true God, she had not been the instrument of so great a salvation. So the, what her parents poured into her at a young age is now coming out of her in, the, in her captivity, in slavery, and she becomes a witness to the living God that she's been told about regardless of her circumstances. Powerful. Very, very powerful. Armed now with a little bit of hope, because you can imagine how Naaman feels, right? What do you think Naaman's wife said? Hey, Naaman, guess what? This girl that we took from Israel, she says there's a guy in Israel that can heal you. Really? Are you kidding me? No, she, she, she's sure of it. He, either he's really, really desperate, which he is, or he looks at this young girl and says, there, there must be something to this. I'm going to check this out. So armed with a little bit of hope, Naaman goes to the king. Look at verse 4. And Naaman went in and he told his master, it was probably Ben-Hadad, king of Syria at this time, and he said this, 
Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So in other words, he tells, her every, tells the king everything the girl said. Then the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. So Naaman goes to the king and he says, hey king, there's a girl, this little girl that we took from Israel, she says there's a guy that can heal me. Now, obviously, a guy like Naaman, he's pretty important to the king. The king needs him, and the king doesn't want to lose him. So what does he say? Go. Go check it out. Go on, Naaman. Go check it out. Go, go meet this person. Go do what you have to do. And take some stuff with you. Notice what he takes with him. How much stuff? Look what he says. He brings 10 talents of silver. Now, that really doesn't mean much to you, does it? Well, let me put it in pounds. 750 pounds of silver. For you, okay. Now let me put it in dollars. It's 196000 dollars worth of silver in today's value. But he also says, take with you six thousand shekels of gold. Okay, six thousand shekels of gold. Now again, that doesn't mean anything to us, does it? Well, you can Google it if you don't if you don't believe me, but you can figure out what a shekel and what we have here is 150 pounds of gold. He's got 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. Yeah, Rob, how much gold is that worth? Do the math. $1,200 an ounce, roughly, uh, 16 ounces in a pound, 150 pounds, $2.8 million in today's, in today's world, today's value. $2.8 million worth of gold and 10 changes of clothing. Now, we all have that in our closet, so we don't really mean much to that. But back then, having 10 outfits to wear was a big deal because most people had how many? One. One. You had one outfit. So he takes, can you imagine the guy that had to carry his wallet? <laughs> I mean, you had to have a whole, whole caravan or stream of people hauling behind you to handle all this stuff, you know? I mean, you don't just walk out, you don't shove, you know, 750 pounds of silver in your back pocket and head out. He had everybody with them. All these things are very valuable, and they're all very sought after. Look at verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said... Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. <laughs> so here comes Naaman before the king of Israel. He presents this letter. This is from the king of Syria, and the king of Israel reads it. And, he, you know, he's doing, he's, you can just imagine him saying, okay, now be advised. What does the king of Syria want? Okay, I know who Naaman is because, yeah, we've been fighting with him for a while, and he's got a letter. What's it say? I'm, here, I'm sending, here I am. I'm sending Naaman, my servant, to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. How does he respond to that? Look at verse 7. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and he said, Am I a god to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. The king of Israel tore his clothes because he knew that he couldn't heal Naaman of his leprosy. Look at his response. What am I, God? Who am I, God? I can't heal leprosy. I'm not, a, I'm not a God. I can't kill people and make alive. He's got a death sentence on his life. I can't reverse that. And he tears his clothes and he thinks about it. He smizes. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. I know this Ben-Hadad guy, he's just trying to pick a fight with me. There, there, this, this is a plan. This, there's something, there's something gone wrong here. There, 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 this is just not normal. No one would come to me and ask me to, to heal somebody of leprosy. This must be a trap of some sort. And right in the midst of all this, 
as this is going down, I can just picture Naaman riding into the palace and talking to him, and I can, I can picture, you know, what's going on, and the king, the king of Israel is all upset. Now he's trying to figure out how he's going to combat this, and, and somehow in the midst of this, miraculously, or by coincidence, if you believe in that, which I don't, miraculously, Elisha gets word of what's going on. Look at verse, uh, where are we at here? Eight. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Notice the rebuke by Elisha to the king. Why'd you tear your clothes, king? Why'd you tear your clothes? You know, you know, you can't, you can't cure leprosy, but what about the God of Israel? What if you forgot all about the God of Israel, King? You see, you're relying on your own abilities. You're relying on your own strength, your own possibilities. What's it, what lies within, the, within your reach? And Elisha says, what about the God of Israel? Send him over to me. I want to show him that there is a prophet in Israel, that there is somebody here that is going to speak to the Lord God of Israel on, on your behalf. Send him over to me. Send him over to my house. Now, you would think that a guy like Elisha, who has such a connection with the Lord, would be found hanging around the king's palace, wouldn't you? You would think that if you were, that's probably where, why Naaman went there. I mean, if you had a prophet of God wouldn't, and you were the king, wouldn't you want him nearby? At least you could say, hey, what does God want us to do? What is, go, can you seek God for me on this? Tell me, see, what, what, what do I want to do? What, what, what does God, how does he want us to do? You'd think that the king would always be consulting the prophet of God. But apparently that's not the case here, is it? Not at all. You think that he'd be looking for direction, Perhaps that's why Naaman came to the palace in the first place. Where else would a prophet of God be but by the king's side? So Elisha says, send him over to me. Look at verse 9. Then Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So word gets back to Naaman. The king of Israel says, you need to go see Elisha. Go on over to Samaria. And he loads up all his chariots and all his gold and all his silver and all his people. And he goes to Elisha's house. And I just picture this whole entourage walking up to Elijah's house, you know. I can just picture Naaman being, you know, the man that, you know, to knock on his door. Tells, give somebody the command to knock on his door. And he knocks on his door. And all of a sudden the door flies open. And Naaman is expected to be met by Elisha at his very house. And he's met by a servant. He's met by a servant. What does the servant say? Go, wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. Your flesh will be, clean, will be restored to you and you shall be cleaned. And I could just picture the door being closed. That's it. You know? I could just picture Naaman standing there going, well, what just happened? Don't they know who I am? I'm the guy that's whipping them. Doesn't, don't they know what power I hold? Don't they know what honor I have? Don't, didn't they read chap, verse 1 of this, of this chapter yet? Don't they know who this really is? I just picture, we're going to find out the name of the servant is Gehazi. I just picture Gehazi going, all right, go wash the Jordan seven times, dip in, you'll be cleansed, you'll be healed. Door closes. And there's Naaman there. How did he react? Look at verse 11. Naaman became furious. He went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? 
Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. Had he take it? Not so good, did he? Not very good. Why did he become furious? Why was he so upset? He felt dishonored because Elisha didn't even answer the door, but he sent a servant. You see, he had an expectation in his mind how things should go, and things didn't go the way that he expected it. So now his little feelings are hurt, and he's going to take all of his gold and silver, and he's going home, and he's going to wash in the cleaner rivers in Damascus. But instead, why else did he, why else did he become furious? He believed there were better rivers in Damascus than there were in Jordan. He thought, why should I wash in that river? It's not that impressive. It's, it's kind of a dirty little river. And if you've ever, it, is, it is not that impressive of a river when you actually see it. And you look at it and go, well, I can see why he would think something like that. Ultimately, he was looking for the man of God to do the healing and not the God of the man. You see, he thought the power lied in Elisha and not in the God of Elisha. He was looking for Elisha, and now he's offended. He's furious. He turns and he heads for home, probably thinking, what a waste of my time. I had to load up all my people. I loaded up all this stuff. How? He doesn't even realize what he's missing out on. He's probably not, And then you start to justify things as this happens, right? And the whole point of it, he's got this idea that he thinks it should happen a certain way. What does he say? Elisha should answer the door. He should come out and meet me. He should call upon his God. He should wave his hand over the, over the area of leprosy, and then it should be healed. And all Elisha said was, go dip in the Jordan River. And he didn't even meet him personally. Sometimes we put expectations on God, on how we think that he should do something. And when it doesn't work out, when the very first step doesn't work out the way that we expect it to, what do we do? We turn and go home. We turn and go home. This is what Naaman's doing. It's not looking like I thought it would look. He wanted a dog and pony show. He wanted the prophet of God to come out. He wanted him to raise his hands and call down fire from heaven like Elijah did. He wanted a, he wanted a show for everyone to see. And he's going to wave his, wave his hands over the, over the area of leprosy. And he wanted to go away. And that would be it. And then everybody could praise Elisha. Or Elisha, yeah, Elisha. Everyone could praise Elisha. Doesn't happen the way that he wants. Take notice of this, because when the Lord does things in your life, he's not always going to do it the way that you expect. When he calls you to do something, even when it comes to healing you of something, even when it comes to leading you in some way, he's not always going to be what you expect. Oftentimes, we have an expectation in the way that we think things should go in our walk with the Lord. And the things that we think are important that the Lord's working on. And even, even when it comes to things in your life, sometimes God wants to work in an area that you're not even letting him work. Sometimes you think the greatest sin and the greatest problem in my life is this. And God says, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about this over here. And you go, I'm, all my time is spent focusing on this one sin over here. And God says, forget it. Let me work over here. If I work over here, that's going to take care of itself. You see, we have to be willing to let the Lord do what he wants to do and the way that he wants to do it in our life and get the results that he wants to get. It's just a matter of us conforming and not being uh, pulled away by these preconceived ideas of what he's done in somebody else's life that it should be the same way in our life. You see, I'm sure Naaman heard a story about this or some sort of healing or one other thing before. Maybe whatever, wherever he got this idea, it was, it was ingrained in his head and he wanted to see it for himself. Fortunately, he doesn't make it home. Look at verse 13. And his servants came near. And they spoke to him. And they said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, 
would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Thank the Lord for faithful servants who are bold enough to speak up when it's necessary. Thank the Lord that this man spoke up and said to him basically, hey, if he had told you to do something great, something powerful, something mighty, something, something required bravery and courage, you would have done it. Why not do it when it's something simple? If he told you to sacrifice a thousand animals, you would have done it. If he'd have told you to walk a hundred miles across burning coals, you would have done it. If he'd have told you to do anything, you would have done it. But yet he just gave you something very, very simple. So why not go down to the Jordan and dip in the river seven times? Why not just, why not just follow him? Now, why is it, or why do you think, or you're going to hear why I think, that Naaman didn't really go, want to go down to the Jordan River? It was too easy. What was keeping him from that? If you really take a look at Naaman and you really look at what Elisha said and you really look at what's on the line here, you think that he would have had a heart that said, I'll do whatever. I don't care if he says stand on my head. I would have done it. But yet Elisha simply says, just go down to the Jordan and dip seven times. What was it that was keeping him from doing that? Number one, it was his pride. Absolutely it was his pride. He had great expectations. He didn't need something so simple. He didn't want it to be so easy. Naaman wanted Elisha to come out and put on a dog and pony show for everybody. He wanted, to, he wanted there, there was pride there. I'm not dipping in that dirty Jordan River of Israel. I got better rivers back home. You see, he didn't understand the power wasn't in the river. The power's not in the man. The power's in the God, the God of Israel. Pride, what else was it? It was his doubt. He doubt. He questioned. He, 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 was, he questioned why should I wash in that river? What's the difference? It's probably not going to work anyway. That river's not going to heal me. That, that doesn't make any sense. Is it possible the Lord wants to heal people today, even tonight, but their pride and their doubt or their lack of faith is keeping it from happening? Sure it is. Absolutely it is. You probably think, oh, I'd like to go forward and have prayer at church, but Ah, it probably won't do any better. It won't, won't do any good anyways. Ah, I don't know if it really matters. I, I, I know the Bible says that if we're sick, to be brought before the elders, anointed with oil, and, and have them pray for me, but eh, it, it, I've done that before. It just won't work again. I just, it didn't work last time. It's not going to work again. Or maybe it's the other way around. I don't want anybody to know I have a problem. I know if I walk forward and I ask for prayer at the end of a service, or I ask the person sitting next to me, or I go ask the pastor for prayer, he's going to think that I have a problem, and and I don't want anyone else to know that I have a problem, so I'm going to let my pride win out here, and I'm not going to get the prayer. Maybe that's keeping you from the healing. Maybe that's keeping you from getting what God has for you. Is it possible? Sure it is. That's what's keeping Naaman. It's so simple. <coughs> Verse 14. After being convinced by his good servant, Verse 14, he went down, he dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman did exactly what Elisha told him. I don't necessarily think it was an act of, of desperation, but rather an act of faith, because he continued to do it seven times. He dunked all seven times. He could have backed out at number three or four or two or five or six, but he went all seven times. And as he comes up the seventh time, he probably looked at wherever that leprosy was. Where's his, there's the first place he's looking. Where's the leprosy on my body? Where do you, what do you see? It's gone. It's clean. It's clean. As a matter of fact, we're told that he was, he was restored like the flesh of a little child. 
He was clean. Not only was, it, not only was the leprosy gone, his flesh was restored like a child, which means all the years of being in the sun, all the years of being in the desert, all those years, all gone. His, his skin was clean and pure and fresh, like, like that of a child. Amazing, isn't it? He would have missed out on it had he kept traveling home. Had he not swallowed his pride and gone to the river, had he not erased his doubts and gone in faith and dunked seven times, he would have missed out on a healing that would eventually kill him, on a disease that would eventually kill him. Did you notice that Elisha's not there? Elisha's not there. He's not down at the river. I'd want to go see that. All right. If the Lord told me, if I, if I ever tell you to go dunk in the Potomac seven times, don't do it. All right. I'm just copying, I'm just copying Naaman here. All right. But if, if, if by chance you came to me and, and you know, I told you to go dunk in the Potomac, and so, I'd make it January, by the way, just see if you really care. I'd sneak down there because I'd want to see what would happen. Because I think there'd be a part of me going, I wonder if it'll work. I'd, I'd want to go see. Elisha's not even there. Not even, doesn't even need to be around. He's not there to witness the healing. What's he doing? He's sitting at home. Whatever he's doing at home, he's, or wherever he's at. Watching TV, exactly. Playing on Facebook or whatever he's doing. No, they didn't have that stuff. Listen, Elisha wasn't there because he wanted to make it clear who was doing the miracle. You see, he knew that if he was there, he would get the credit for the miracle, and he wanted the God of Israel to get the credit for the miracle. It wasn't Elisha. It was the God of Elisha, the God of Israel. Sometimes people can make the same mistake of worshiping uh, you, you see it, people, people begin to worship men. They begin to put men up on pedestals. And, and God does great things through men today as well. Not necessarily healings like that, but he does great things, accomplishes great ministries. And you begin, to, you begin to elevate a man or a person. And you have to realize it's not the man or the person. It's the God of that person that's doing the work. We should never put our faith and our trust and our hope in people. We should never follow people. I have great respect for the pastor that brought me into ministry. I have great respect for Pastor Chuck Smith, and I, I, I've learned so much from them. But I don't follow Pastor Chuck. I follow, I follow Pastor Jesus. I follow Jesus Christ. I follow the God of Israel. I follow the God of the Bible. You know, I don't follow a man, and, and nor should you. And I realize the men are, are not perfect. You know, of the, let's see. I think of the five pastors that had the greatest influence on my life, three of them are no longer in ministry because they've fallen because of sexual sin. Three of them, no longer in ministry. We don't ever put men on a pedestal because men will always let you down. I'm going to offend you at some point. I'm going to say something you disagree with. I'm going to, it's just going to happen. I'm human. That's why we don't follow men. We don't follow a church. We don't follow a denomination. We follow Jesus Christ. That is where our hope lies in him and him alone. All the rest of it is going to get polluted and different things are going to fall out and it's going to be issues and problems along the way, but our hope isn't in our denomination. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross and nothing else. No longer angry. Naaman is rejoicing, isn't he? He no longer has leprosy. The death sentence on his life has been lifted by dunking in the Jordan River. Look what he does in verse 15. He returned to the man of God. He didn't go home. He returned to the man of God. He and all his aides, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Not that he's the greatest. There is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. 
But Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Before, earlier, Naaman expected the prophet to come out and see him. Now Naaman goes and stands before the prophet. Who's the, who's the man with the honor now? Who's the man in the position of power now? Well, certainly it's Elisha because he's a prophet of God. Look what Naaman says. There is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Naaman was thankful. And out of his gratitude, he wanted to give to Elisha. But Elisha refused. We don't know why he refused. We just know that for some reason, at this particular season, for this particular person, Elisha, the, the Lord must have told Elisha, hey, don't take anything from him. We're not given that insight in the scripture, but whatever it was, we can tell the fact that Elisha refused that he wasn't going to take it. Verse 17, then Naaman said, then if not, please, let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For the servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet, in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. So Naaman says, I need two mule loads of earth or dirt. I'm going to load up two mules with dirt on their back. And they're going to, I'm going to bring the dirt of Israel back, to, back home. I'm going to have a piece of Israel. Why did he want to do that? That just seems kind of weird. Listen, he, 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 like, like a lot of new believers, he's a little superstitious in his faith. He, he's a little superstitious. He held the common opinion of the ancient world that particular deities had power over particular geographical areas. So he figured he would take a part of Israel back with him to Syria, and then he could worship the God of Israel, having the dirt from Israel there, and that would help him in his worship. One commentator said this, the transporting of holy soil was a widespread custom. Naaman's faith was yet untaught, and with his personal need to follow pu publicly the state cults, Elisha may have felt that available Israelite soil may have afforded Naaman with some tangible reminder of his cleansing and new relationship to God. Now, when he made the statement previously, some people believe that he's asking to be pardoned from his previous worship of other gods. And other commentators believe, and it seems more likely, that Naaman is asking for forgiveness for going into these temples when he gets back home. Because he realizes, I'm the right-hand guy of the king. When the king goes into the temple, I'm going to have to go with him. I'm going to have to go to these places. But I want you to know, Elisha, when I go there, I'm not worshiping the God of that temple. I'm worshiping the God of Israel. So pardon me for that, please. And he, he, starts, his, he starts, it, starts it with pardon me, and he ends it with pardon me. I'm the king's right-hand man. I'm going to be required to do these things. Now, there's great debate among commentators of what Elisha should say here, or what he should have said. Because Elisha simply says in verse 19, go in peace. Some commentators think, no, no, he should have said, no, don't do that. You serve the God of Israel only. Don't go back. And they should have laid it all out there for him. But by generally approving and not really saying yes or no, it seems Elisha left the matter up to Naaman and to God. I like that. Because Elisha says, go in peace. 
Let the Lord convict you of what's right and what's wrong. I don't need to convict you of what's right. I, I, I believe this is what Elisha's saying. You go head back home, Naaman, and you do what you have to do, but you let the Lord convict you, and you respond to that conviction of the Lord. I've often said it many times. I don't want to be the Holy Spirit in your life. I can't tell you what to do. I can, you could look at my life and go, well, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that that way. And you could try to be the Holy Spirit in my life, and I could try to be the Holy Spirit in your life, and you know what we'll find? We'll be legalistic and judgmental. That's where we'll end up because I'll be looking at you and I'll be getting up here every week telling you what you're doing wrong and you'll be going, I can't believe him. I saw, I, I, I saw him driving the other day and he was speeding. He told us last week he got pulled over. What's wrong with him? And that's what we would end up. But here's what I've come to find out. When I first got saved, I didn't stop doing anything that I was doing. I kept right on doing everything that I was doing that was wrong. But what I did is I started spending time with God. As I started spending time with the Lord, Little by little, the Lord pointed out in my life what needed to be changed. The day I got saved, the day I came to the Lord, if you would have come to me and said, all right, I want you to stop cussing, I want you to stop drinking, I want you to stop going to bad movies, I want you to, I want you to stop thinking like that, I just said, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. But as I walked with the Lord, as the closer I got, the more he told me what needed to be changed in my life. As I studied the word, as the, I listened to pastors teach the word, I began to look, oh, that's me. I'm that guy. I need to change. I'm like Naaman. I'm, I'm prideful. My doubt is getting in my way. I need to change that there. And it allows the Lord to work in somebody's life. Hopefully that's the way our fellowship sees it. Because if we look out at each other, you know what we're going to find? We're, gonna, we're all sinners. Anybody here not a sinner that wants to stand up? I'm not a sinner. You can look at me. Look at my life. Use my life as your standard. There's nobody's hand going up. But we also don't need a bunch of sin sniffers that are going around finding out what everybody else does wrong. <laughs> You like that, huh? We don't need to be going around sniffing, oh, there's sin over there, there's sin in that camp, there's sin in that. Look at your own life. Let the Lord work in that person's life. I heard a story one time, I'm going to share this. There was a girl who walked into a church, uh, I, didn't, I wasn't part of the story, I just heard it, and uh, she came in and she wasn't appropriately dressed for church. She had her, her, her skirt was a little too short and her top was a little bit too tight and and uh, after church, the pastor had gone to, uh, the elder had, elders had come to the pastor and said, listen, you need, somebody needs to talk to her. Somebody needs to go tell her that she's not dressed appropriately for church. And the pastor said, we need to quit looking at her. And uh, the pastor said, we're not, we're, we're not, we're not going to go tell her. We're going to let her keep coming to church. If she wants to hear the word of God, we're going to let the word of God convict her. But if she's bothering you, then sit in front of her instead of behind her. And then what happened is time went by and the weeks and the, and the months went by. All of a sudden, what they found out was this girl, her, her lifestyle was very sinful. And as she began to come to church and she began to hear the word of God, you would see her stand there start to tug on her skirt because she knew that it was, it was too short. And then what would happen is over time, her, her dress changed. She started to dress more modestly, started to dress more appropriately that we would call for church. And what, 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 the, what the moral of the story is, had he gone to her and told her, listen, you're not, you need to dress appropriately, she would have never come back to that church again. She would never come back. She said, bunch of judgmental people, you know, because the church needs to be a hospital. It's a place where the hurting people can come, and they're not going to come dressed appropriately. They're not going to come with the right language. They're not going to come with the right idea. They're not going to come walking with the Lord for 20 years. I've said it many times, if you want to see a revival, you better be prepared to clean up the mess. Because it is going to be messy when people start coming to the Lord. They bring all of this stuff and all the sin with them right into the church. 
And we have to be as believers going, yes, we'll embrace that because we know that our God can work in their life and take care of it little by little and I don't have to clean it up. It doesn't mean you don't correct anybody. It doesn't mean you let people do whatever they want. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I, I do fully believe in church discipline in Matthew 18. I certainly believe in that. But what I'm saying is when a sinner, th- th- this needs to be a place where sinners can feel welcome so they can hear the word of God. They can be taught the word of God. The Holy Spirit can convict them of their sin and they can change their life as the Lord leads them. If we, begin, or we become the Holy Spirit in somebody's life, then we've lost it. We've got to trust that he's doing his job, which is convict the world of sin, and we're doing our job as loving the people that he's bringing to us. All right. Where do we end off here? 19. Go in peace. So we departed from him a short time. Verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian. I'm sure that was with a negative tone. While not receiving from his hand what he brought, but as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Oh, this is not going to be good for Gehazi. Gehazi was shocked that Elijah wouldn't take any money or clothes from Naaman. He probably felt as though he deserved it, even entitled to it. Wait, 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 wait. God used you, Elisha. God used you mightily. In the, he's a Syrian. He's not even an Israelite. And, you, and now he doesn't have... We killed him in battle. Now we just saved his life. Now we have to fight against him. Let's at least take some money from him. I'm sure that's what he was thinking. Apparently, and for whatever reason, the Lord had told Elisha, no, don't take anything from him. Verse 21, so Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me, saying, indeed, just now, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, please take two talents, lest I have to carry back home. And he urged him, and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants. And they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, that means the hill, he came from there, he, he took them from their hand and he stored them away in the house and he let the men go and they departed. So Gehazi said, well, wait, there, there's a couple of prophets that just came. They came from the mountains of, of Ephraim and, and they could really use a talent of silver and a couple of changes of clothes. And, the, and, and Naaman, he's, he's still praising God, right? He's going back without lepers. What does he say? Take two talents of silver. Now I don't have to carry it back home. Go ahead, take two, whatever you need. Go ahead, take two. Take three, they're small, whatever. And he gives them the two changes of clothes. And Gehazi's got to bring a group with him too because he can't, he's going to be, have to carry it back home and he takes all this stuff back home with him. And what does he do? He hides it in the house. How do you know that he knew it was wrong? He hides it in the house. He stores it away in the house. And he lied about it. That's how you know. He, he, he flat out lies about it. He stored them away. Verse 25, now he went in and stood before his master. Went in and stood before him. Hey, Elisha, how you doing today? And Elisha said to him, where'd you go, Gehazi? Uh-oh. The problem with having a boss that's a prophet from the Lord is you can't get away with nothing. <laughs> so uh, Gehazi goes in. Stands before Elisha, can I get you something or whatever he says? And Elisha goes, where'd you go? And he said, your servant didn't go anywhere. I didn't go anywhere. 
<sighs> and he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Is it time to get paid? In other words, verse 27, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. We're not sure how Elisha knew what happened, but somehow the Lord revealed it to him. As I said in the very beginning, a pagan man is cured of his leprosy by an act of faith. An Israelite is cursed with leprosy by an act of disobedience. This was a severe judgment, but as a minister, Gehazi was held to a higher standard. People were watching him. He was, he was a servant of Elisha. When he allowed himself to covet what Naaman had, he was looking in terms of wealth and money, stuff, things of the world. That's what I want. We need, we need this. We, we need some, maybe they were short on money. I don't know what their situation was. But Elisha says, now is not the time for that. I was with you when this happened. The Lord had revealed this to me. Notice also, God allowed him to keep the riches. Nowhere are they returned. Go ahead. You can keep them, but you're going to keep the leprosy with you. You're going to carry the leprosy forever. You want to keep the two talents of silver and the two chains of the clothes? Go ahead. But you're going to have a reminder for the rest of your life of the sin that you committed. You're going to have a reminder for the rest of your life that you coveted the things of the world. You, 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 you created a lie and you went out and then you got caught. You're going to have a reminder that for the rest of your life as you slowly live out this death sentence is now on you and your descendants. In the Bible, leprosy is a picture of sin. It's always a picture of sin. It just eats away at you. Just the same way that I described leprosy to you in the very beginning of this message is what sin does in your life. It eats away at you little by little by little by little. A little here, a little there, a little here. It'll ultimately kill you. Just like I described leprosy here. The story of Naaman being healed of leprosy is a vivid illustration of the gospel message. Always look to the Old Testament and say, what is it teaching me about the New Testament? What is it showing me? Number one, it's showing me that leprosy is the picture of sin. Number two, the message of hope was given by a little servant girl. Here he is dead in leprosy, and yet there's a message of hope given by a little girl. He says, I know somebody that can heal you. And naturally, if that was you, you would say, where, who, how, what, 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 what? give me a pill, what can I take, something. The message of hope was given to a little servant girl, and she passed on that hope. It was taught to her when she was young by her family. And then she passed it on at the very time she had, despite her negative circumstance. You see, she shared what good news she knew about the Lord with Naaman's wife, despite her miserable circumstance. The third thing is the power of that was in the message, not in the messenger. The power of that hope, that message, that it was in the message. Naaman thought Elisha would do something spectacular, but it was the God of Elisha who was going to perform the miracle. It was the God of Elisha that would perform the healing. Instead, Elisha just gave a simple word. He said, Naaman, go on down to the river, Jordan River, dip in it seven times. You know what the word Jordan means? It means judgment. Go down and dip into the judgment river seven times. 
What does the number seven stand for? Completion. Your judgment will be complete after you dip into the river seven times. Naaman was to immerse himself completely in the river of judgment seven times. How are we to be cleansed of our leprosy, of our sin? We're to immerse ourselves in the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. You see, the river of judgment was the Jordan River, but the judgment that we deserve was taken upon Jesus Christ on the cross. We are to immerse ourselves in the fact that he took our judgment. We're not holy, we're not righteous by the life that we live. We're not holy, we're not righteous by the Bible verses we have memorized, by the good counsel that we give, by the money that we make, by the, by the title of being a good person. You ever heard that before? He's a good person. She's a, they're good people. That's great. It's, it's good to be good, but it doesn't make you righteous before a holy God. You see, our overcoming sin is through Jesus on the cross. It's pictured here perfectly in the Old Testament through the story of Naaman. I love it when the Old Testament lines up with the New Testament and we can pull things like that out of it. Before we close tonight, let's just take a few minutes and pray. Um, whatever you need to pray for, whatever, wherever you're at, whatever God's got on your heart, uh, Rebecca and I are going to be up here to pray. If you need prayer tonight for something or you want to come up, come on up. I'd love to pray with you. Um, Kevin can come up too if you need prayer. Kevin can pray with somebody. Uh, I would encourage you, don't, don't be like Naaman. Don't head home if you need prayer. Come get the prayer that you need. And if somebody, if there's more, if people want to come up, whatever, just pray with somebody. Pray with the person next to you if you have to. But let's not be like Naaman and let our pride and our doubt keep us from the very healing that we desire. Father, we just come before you. What a beautiful picture you laid out for us here in the Old Testament of, of the New Testament and what you accomplished on the cross. Lord, there's a tendency for all of us to be like Naaman. But Father, as we take these few minutes and we come to you through the blood of Jesus, through what he accomplished on the cross, it's the only way that we can stand before a holy God and we're told to come boldly into the throne room of God. As we come before you now, would you minister to our hearts? Or would you let us know what we need to pray for? Or would you ease the burden if there's a burden? Or would you heal those that are sick? Remove the anxiety from those that are anxious and worried. Lord, have your way in our hearts. For you know what we need more than we do. So go before the Lord quietly on your own.